And one of the things that happened was that the blogging for profit course sort of reignited my passion for wanting to share the message, because what it did was give me the tools, teach me the steps to take to make all those things so much easier. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello there, and welcome to another episode of The Fi Show. Before I get to yapping, check in with my co-host, Cody. How's it going? What's up, man? I actually just got back from a fun wedding weekend down in Florida, so I got to escape the cold of Massachusetts for a little bit. How about you, man? Well, I'm finishing up my last day here in Colorado. Took a trip down here. I actually went skiing on Monday in Keystone. So yeah, the slopes are already open and I even had a little quick frugal win. So we get there, realize the girlfriend's skis aren't set up, call around a few places, try to get the boots set up for the bindings, you know, and all these places are like, well, we can get you in in like 10 days. Well, that's not really going to work. So got on YouTube 10 minutes later, got them all ready to go. So as long as we don't have any ACL tears this season, I think we'll come out ahead, save that 25 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> well, Justin, that is super cool that you picked up that new skill, saving you 25 bucks. And speaking of skills, let's hear a quick word from our sponsor, Skillshare. Skillshare is this really cool online learning community where they've got thousands of classes covering all these different creative skills or entrepreneurial skills. You could take classes in everything from photography to creative writing. I know I'm really excited about looking at the Instagram for business because we're always trying to make the five show assets look a little better online to attract more people. So you can join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare. You will get two months of unlimited access to all of their courses. All you have to do is go to Skillshare.com slash show. That's Skillshare.com slash Fi show. And speaking of wins and acquiring skills, we have Mrs. Miller from Miller's on Fire on today. And just for some context, I actually know Mrs. Miller through the blogging for profit course that I run over with Julie from Fire Drill. And so she was a student in the blogging for profit course. And those courses are actually opening again for enrollment this Thursday, November 14th through Sunday, November 17th at midnight. And so the blogging course and also the Etsy printables course, we're not going to be talking about that in the episode today. But if you're interested, both of those will be open this weekend. We've gotten quite a few messages. So just wanted to quickly mention that. And we'll have some links in the show notes where you can sign up. But back to Mrs. Miller, she discovers FI or FIRE in 2015 and her whole life just changes. She thought she was doing so good with money, saving 8 to 10%, doing all the quote unquote right things. But you know, she was treating herself. She was going out and spending the money she had because she was making pretty good money. But I don't want to give away her whole story. Take it away, Mrs. Miller. I've always been pretty responsible with money, but I didn't become a financial optimizer until about 2016 when I hit the rabbit hole discovering what the fire movement was. Then I knew I needed to do things differently. So 2016, do you mind telling us what age you were in 2016? Gosh, so that was about three years ago. I was 32. Actually, this was in 2015 when I first read my first Forbes article that involved Go Curry Cracker. A lot of people might be familiar with their story. So I read a Forbes article in 2015, and my husband and I had not were not married at the time. And I sort of sent him this article about this couple that had retired before they were 40. And I read the article, and it sort of sat there. Then I started having some trouble at work. Like, I feel like that's the story for so many people. And I wanted to know what my options were. And I remember reading the story of this couple who had retired early. So 
I think I reread the article on a Friday and I literally spent the entire weekend reading blogs, listening to podcasts. And that was how the story began. So 2015, yeah, I was about uh, 32. Okay, so can we take a multi-year, even multi-decade jump back? And could you talk about a little bit how you were raised? I know you mentioned good with money, but that's pretty subjective. Like, could you give us a better picture of your 20s or even before then, like how it was growing up in the house? Yeah, so I am a native New Yorker, born and raised in New York City and uh, specifically in the Bronx. So it's one of the poorest borough. Actually, it's the poorest borough in New York City. And I didn't really think we were poor. Everybody else was basically in the same situation that we were. And when I sort of reflect back on it now, you know, we always had a roof over our head. We had food to eat. Both of my parents had a car. My dad had a car. My mom had the minivan. And, you know, there were 10-year-old vehicles, but that was actually pretty different. It wasn't typical from most New Yorkers. So that was sort of my upbringing. But I know we didn't have a lot. I remember only being able to buy one pair of sneakers for at the start of the school year. And those were supposed to last you, you know, those tennis shoes were supposed to last you for the whole year. So that was sort of my upbringing. In my 20s, I was fortunate enough to get a pretty good paying job. I started at a job making about $25,000 a year. And I remember when I got that offer, I was like, wow, $25,000 a year. And so that was sort of my one of the first jobs that I had while I was still in college. So speaking of college, what did you go to college for? And did you know that you you know wanted to go through that traditional route? Or did you ever have any thoughts of maybe going out on your own as like an entrepreneurial route? Definitely not an entrepreneur. My plan was to graduate from high school, go to college, go to law school. I knew that I wanted to do something in the criminal justice field, and that's actually the career that I am in now. And so I went to a community college because that was what I could afford. And also, like, I am the oldest of five children, so I ha- there was a lot of responsibility on me to sort of continue to help my mom while the kids were still young. So I stayed at home and I went to a community college and then I transferred to a university. Originally, my degree was in political science, but I sort of thought if I don't go to law school, what am I going to do with a degree in political science? So I ended up majoring in business, not really because I was super interested in business, but because I knew that there were more doors that would open with a business degree than with a political science degree. And I actually enjoyed it. It was pretty good. And I had a minor in law. Okay. So this is a perfect transition into something that you actually, you've written about on your blog before and coming up from the Bronx, like you just mentioned before, you saw a lot of poverty, you saw a lot of people around you who didn't have much. And this idea of wealth guilt, could you talk about that for a little bit? Yeah. So that didn't really happen until, so I guess, let me continue in the rest of the story. So I ended up going to community college, graduated from a university I had pretty good jobs right out of actually while I was still in college, I was working full time and then taking 18 credit hours a semester. So I knew that I wanted to be in the criminal justice field. But after I graduated with my undergrad, I wanted a break before I went into law school. And so I went to school in Florida. I came back to New York City and I stayed in New York City for a couple of years Now, at that time, my family had actually transitioned to Florida and only my dad was here in New York. So when I got a job offer here in New York City, I said, great, I'll live with my dad for a little bit until I can get on my feet. Well, 
that didn't happen. I ended up staying with my dad, but I couldn't get an apartment on my own. I couldn't afford it. And so I ended up living with my dad for two and a half years until I found a job with the federal government and I moved cross country to California. So at that time, my job in New York, I was getting paid about $33,000 a year. And I pretty much doubled my salary, actually more than doubled my salary. I went from 33 to about $70,000 a year. So I was able to get my first apartment. I was living on my own and I thought I was doing pretty good. I was saving a little bit of money. I remember signing the papers at the HR department. The human resource person had filled out my application or the default was to contribute 7%. And I remember saying, oh, that's too much money. Let's, you know, so we brought it down and, you know, we had access to a thrift savings plan and matching. And she said, well, let's do at least 3%. And so I said, yeah, that sounds reasonable. And so I cringe at that now because I was doubling my salary. I didn't even, I hadn't even gotten my first paycheck and I was already saying that that was too much savings, right? I started making pretty good money and things were, I was in a pretty good road. I had a really good job that I enjoyed. And then the wealth guilt came in a couple years later, a few years later, I was making around $90,000 at that point. And I was about to get a step increase or grade increase. And I was going to go from making about, I think maybe it was $94,000 to $100,000. And I remember not feeling happy about it. I didn't know why. I didn't understand this term of wealth guilt, but I remember that I wasn't excited about it. I felt heavy. It felt, I had this heavy feeling about making six figures and I couldn't, I didn't understand. I talked to a couple of friends of mine. They didn't understand, but I just knew that what should have been a time of excitement, just like any pay raise. It just didn't feel right. So I have a, a little bit of a similar kind of you know story where my background was on the poor end of things. Most of my family haven't met kind of those levels of you know financial success that I have. I mean, some very smart people in my family, but never just you know kind of hit some of those those numbers you're talking about, like that six figure mark. So it sounds like you know that was part of it. You're dealing with it. Maybe the people that you grew up around, or even in your family didn't end up at that same level that you did. And, you know, sometimes they caught like even survivor's guilt where why did I get there and they didn't kind of thing. So I completely understand where you're coming from. Just curious, have you gotten over that? And if so, how? Like, how did you wrestle with that fact that kind of you got out and you made it and so many of the people that you grew up with didn't? I mean, I think it's exactly that. Like, I didn't have the words for it. I didn't really understand what I was feeling, but I knew that I should have been excited and happy. And I was grateful, but I felt guilty. I felt guilty that I knew that my family, my friends, people that I grew up with just weren't in that situation. And I think one of the things was that I was being a little irresponsible with money. I had a lot of money to spend and I did, you know, I always put some money aside, but I never saved as much as I should have. If I wanted to eat out, I did. If I wanted to go on vacation, I could. And I think it was at that point, sort of analyzing and evaluating my situation was where the guilt came from. You know, there's so many people who work 40, 50, 60 hours. They hate their job. They make minimum wage, barely scraping by. And here I was unmarried, no children, 
young, making six figures, and there were people who were struggling. And it just didn't feel right. It didn't feel just to me. And I felt undeserving, like I didn't deserve it. I had a job that I loved and I was living a life that I enjoyed and it just didn't feel right. And I didn't want to lose touch. I didn't want people to feel like I couldn't relate to their situation anymore because I was, you know, this was also during the time of the 1% conversation that was going on. And I was like, am I a one percenter? Like, are people going to turn on me? And so I did have to come to terms with it. And what it was, it was just like, let's start with being grateful. Be grateful that you are in the situation. You know, you've been fortunate enough, you've worked hard and you've been blessed to be in this situation so that you can first take care of yourself. And my mom always says, you know, like, I don't have to worry about you. And I feel like that in itself is something that I'm happy for, that I'm glad she doesn't have to worry about me. And then in addition to that, I've always, I've known the situation of my family and I help every single way that I can, you know, obviously there's some boundaries and (laughs) things like that, that have to happen, but it was just starting off with feeling grateful, you know, sort of pushing aside, you know, if you would have told me that I was being ungrateful, I wouldn't have believed it. But I think it was just sort of getting back to the basics, like be thankful that you are in the situation you know, and I was, I was, I was very thankful. So looking back at your outsized success compared to maybe other people who are in your neighborhood, your friends, your family, I know something that you've written about previously on your blog. And this was in 2008, I believe from this post. And you talk about when you realized what the difference was between a goal setter and a dreamer. And do you think that kind of distinction played forward toward your success? Oh, that's a, yeah, actually, that's a really good question. I, for sure, I'm a goal setter. I think I little by little have tried to become a little bit more of a dreamer. Where I make the distinction is that if I want to accomplish something, I say it, I do it, I get it done, and I check it off my list. But I think that sometimes limits me in dreaming bigger or setting my goals higher. I met this incredible guy. His name is Eric Knopf, and he's one of the biggest dreamers that I've ever met. I think I mentioned in that post, we were trying to find a way to give back to this small community. And I was like, oh, we can gather up clothing. We can, you know, maybe collect toys for the kids. And he's like, what about if we built a school? And I was like, built a school? And we have six months to plan how we're going to do it. You know, and that, and there was in his mind, there was no way that that wasn't going to happen. It was just going to happen. He just believed it. And guess what happened? We ended up building one classroom and it took a couple of years and we finished the whole school. And I think to me, like I said, naturally, I'm a goal setter. I sometimes live in myself because I don't want to (laughs) fail. But I think, you know, sort of reminding myself, and I think it's a good exercise for everybody. Like, if you are not scared, you're not dreaming big enough. I think there has to be a little bit of fear. And, you know, that's the definition of being courageous, right? Like, it's doing it scared. So just quickly, before we move on, could you just give a quick definition of a goal setter and a dreamer? If people are like, what are these guys talking about? (laughs) Yeah, as I touched on a little while ago, I think that a goal setter is someone who sets out things that might be achievable, right? Like, this is what I want to do. And that's a goal that I have, you know, whether it's I want to lose 10 pounds, I want to save $1,000, I want to get rid of this $5,000 debt. 
Like these are achievable goals. I think a dreamer would be somebody who would say, I want to run a marathon. I want to, you know, get rid of $100,000 worth of student loans in five years. And I think it's that idea of just limiting yourself. I think it's great to be goal setter, but sometimes we limit our dreams by putting things out there in the world that are we know are achievable. It's going to take work. It's not that it's not hard or difficult, but it's about saying, you know what? I don't know if I can ever accomplish this, but I'm going to die trying. And I think that what I've learned is that even when my dreams don't come true, that I just end up doing a lot more than I ever thought I would have. Yeah, I think that's an interesting conversation and comparison between the two. I think it's also important to kind of have the skills of both. Like, so when you sit down, think about those big needle movers, the things that would really change your life, and then kind of start to work it backwards. Okay, well, now what would it take to get there? And that's where that, that goal setting mentality would come into play and be very important. Because sometimes you do have people who are like these dreamers, but then they don't have any tactical movement towards it. And sometimes it can hurt your motivation if you're not sitting there and, and having little goals that you're meeting along the way towards that big dream. So I think that's a, that's a cool discussion. Jumping back into kind of your journey, I know you said you started making good money after college. But then you didn't discover this kind of idea of financial independence until 32. So obviously, there's a, there's a decent gap there. So when you hit that point, when you're 32, you discover financial independence. What did your finances look like? Like, you know, I know you said you'd been saving some, but just to give the listeners an idea, you know, what was your status at that point? Thankfully, I never had credit card debt. I had about $20,000 worth of student loans. I had a car that I bought used. So I had a car note. And I was saving at that point, by the time um, I discovered financial independence, I was saving about 10% of my income. So when I say 10%, that was actually 10% that I was contributing to the thrift savings plan to its equivalent to a 401k or 403b for government employees. And so I, you know, was contributing for retirement and I had a little bit of money in the uh, savings account. Maybe I had about $8,000. So I thought I was doing pretty good. What happened was that when I began to read what people in their 40s were doing, right, and I started to see, you know, originally when I read the headline, you know, I was like, oh, this is such clickbait. These are people (laughs) who are making $250,000 each, you know, a husband and wife, of course, they can live on one income. And when I began to see some of the decisions that they were making, that was when I began to reflect on my own. So I had purchased a home in 2010. It was a great time to be a buyer. I didn't really understand that at the time, but it was a great time to be a buyer. So I got a three bedroom, two and a half bathroom house that me and my dog lived in, right? (laughs) That was why I needed a 2,400 square foot home for me and the dog. But I did make some decisions that were not intentionally savvy. I didn't know this term house hacking. But after living in the house for a little bit, I ended up having two roommates who helped me pay the mortgage. And so one of my roommates rent checks I would put into a savings account and the other one I would just spend and I would do, you know, whatever I wanted with it. So that was sort of where I was at the time. I didn't really have credit card debt. I was paying all my bills. I was saving some money. So I thought I was being pretty responsible. I just wasn't really optimizing. Right. Like had I known what VTSAX was and had someone explain to me, you know, the power and the magic of compound interest, I definitely would be at a different situation today. But that was where I was when I discovered the FIRE movement. 
So what tactical moves did you make once you discovered the fire movement? I know you kind of talked about, it sounds like you're just stumbling into awesome things like house hacking and you are saving stuff, but you didn't really know exactly what was going on. But once you start diving into the content and you like realize what compound interest can do for you 10, 20, 30 years down the road, what tactical differences did you make in your life? Yeah, so I've always been a little bit of a money nerd. I've had the same Excel spreadsheet from back in college. The other day I looked at an Excel spreadsheet from 2005 when interest rates were 5%. Can you believe that? Like a high yield savings account is 5%. So I've always known where my money was going. But one of the things that I realized was I had a lot of money to play with. I had a lot of discretionary income and I was using it exactly for that. Like I was just having fun with it. And so what would happen is that I would get a credit card bill. Okay, $500. I didn't really know what I spent it on, to be honest. I didn't know if it was food. I had a lot of clothes and a lot of shoes for sure. So I was living in this house. I had a walk-in closet. The first time I ever had a walk-in closet, I had so many clothes and shoes that I had to store stuff in my garage. (laughs) Like, this is just like how obscene, you know, and obsessed, not obsessive, uh, maybe that is the word. <laughs> this is how sort of obscene it was. You know, I just was able to buy all of these things that I never had. You know, as I mentioned before, we would get one pair of shoes a year. So now I could buy 40. And so I was going to get every color, every style, every type, because now I had options and variety. So I began to look at my, when I started reading all of these blogs, I began to look at my budget and I would see, oh, you know, you, put $400 on this Capital One card? What did you spend? And obviously there weren't these memorable things, right? So I did something, I ate out somewhere, but nothing that was incredibly memorable. And so that was what made me take a look and sort of evaluate what I had been spending my money on and if it could be doing something different. Because when I would see people saving 50% of their income, I was like, well, well, what are you living off of? And so when I looked at sort of the discretionary income that I had, I said, well, I don't know if I can save 50%, but I definitely could save a few hundred dollars more than I'm saving because I'm spending this money on clothes and shoes that still have tags on it that I haven't worn. Do you have any idea what your savings rate was kind of right when you first started discovering financial dependence? So before you actually got serious and started making those changes and then what has that savings rate grown to today? I know that I was saving about 10%. I had slowly increased my TSP contribution. So I was at 10% and I had a little bit of money that once I got paid, I would save into a savings account. So I would say maybe 10, 11%. Right now, my husband and I aim to save anywhere between 45 and about 52%. It varies depending on what type of vacations we want to take that year, (laughs) but we're saving about anywhere between 45 and 52%. I love the specificity. You can tell you're a spreadsheet nerd. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. 52%. (laughs) You know, it really depends. Like I, and then, you know, it's like, are you including gross income or is that net pay, you know, and then that also changes the figures. <laughs> okay, so I know we just mentioned your husband. When did he come into the picture exactly? And what was his whole financial background? Like I know a lot of people, they start button heads when one person finds out about FI or FIRE, and then it takes like a while to get the other person on board. Could you just talk about that whole dynamic and backstory? 
Yeah, my husband actually began going to investment clubs when he was 10 years old. He started going with his dad. And so he always had this idea like he was going to retire early, but he didn't really have, you know, he was more of the dreamer with no goal, right? <laughs> like he, he didn't have a plan. He always knew that he wasn't going to work till he was 65. His dad is a contractor and his father tells me the story of on Saturday mornings, he and his brother would go and help his dad out on whatever project they were in. And my husband told him one day, you know, I don't want to work with my hands. I want to work with my mind. <laughs> oh, this was my husband. But in 2015, I read this article. I sent it to him. I was excited about it. And he was like, oh, yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I definitely, you know, that that was the extent of it. But it wasn't until after I spent this whole weekend, it was on a Sunday and I like late, I had done my projections and my spreadsheets and my, I had calculators out and I'm like, we need to retire in 10 years. This is what we need to do. And this is how we're going to do it. And he was like, great, awesome. <laughs> now, he was always more of an active investor. So, you know, he didn't like the idea of putting everything into index funds and sort of being hands off. But he was definitely in, he was, I'm more of the natural spender. He's not really a natural spender. So there weren't many changes for him. He just was like, all right, let's, what do we need to do? And let's get there. So you kind of said that in a past tense fashion, like he, you know, he wasn't that into the idea of investing in index funds. So did he come around to investing in index funds? And what was that conversation like? Like, how'd you win him over to say, you know what, you don't need to be sitting there stressing and trying to day trade? Yeah, he actually is not a day trader. He's definitely into value investing and he believes in the Warren Buffett way. But of course, every, oh gosh, he'll hate when I say this, but like he definitely thinks that he could be the next Warren Buffett, right? Like he just loves reading annual reports and things like that. But what I wanted to do was let's go ahead and focus on the things that are going to help our tax situation. You know, we're, we were semi high income earners. So the first thing that we did was maximize all of those tax advantage accounts. So we began to make sure that we contributed the maximum to our 401ks. We opened up Roth IRAs and we set those up so that those would be Vanguard. I think we did Vanguard VTIs until we met the threshold. I think at that point it was like five or I think it was $10,000 so that we can open up a VTSAX. Then, well, really I began to cut my expenses. So once I did that, and we were contributing the maximum to our 401ks, our Roth IRAs. Then we had money to do our taxable brokerage accounts. Now, I, for my taxable brokerage account, still put money into VTSAX. My husband will do more active investing. And so at some point in your journey, you decide, okay, I've learned enough. I need to start sharing this message and start documenting this. So when did your blog Miller's on Fire come about? I always tell this story that when I discovered what the math looked like, what compound interest was, and I realized that investing in the stock market was not as complicated as people made it out to seem, I really got upset. I was like, why did no one tell me about this? Maybe I would have made the same decisions, you know, that I did, but it would have been nice to have the option and the understanding of where it could get me. So I didn't know anyone in my circle of friends 
who were doing this, who understood this. No one, even when I got excited and I started to ask people like, oh my goodness, did you hear about this thing? There wasn't anybody around me, even my husband who was, who understood compound interest and understood investing, never sort of correlated like what cutting expenses, investing money could do for retirement, you know, like that it could really decrease the length of your work time, you know, from retiring at 65 to retiring at 50 or 45. And so I wanted to make sure that I talked to the people who I knew and educate the people that I knew about what their options were. And that was where Miller's on Fire came from. So I want to do something a little annoying and ask you a multi-part question, which I know everyone hates, but <laughs> I would like for you to tell us, so I know as part of your blogging journey that you are being very transparent with numbers. So A, I would like to understand, you know, because a lot of bloggers don't do that. I personally do that and love that. So I would love to hear, you know, why you decided to be so transparent. And then with that, since you are so transparent out there, could you tell us kind of what your current status is from like a net worth perspective? And then what that goal is, like I know you said, you sat down and said, we will retire in 10 years. What net worth goal are you chasing for that? So that's the whole question there. Yeah. So one of the things that even when I was reading the blogs of how to do it, I still was a little skeptical. And it wasn't until I think I read the 1500 day blog when I started reading Mr. 1500 days, when he shared his numbers that I really open my eyes as to what it could look like. And then, of course, there's Justin over at Root of Good, who has an incredible blog about how to make $100,000 and pay almost no income tax. So those two blogs really helped me understand the numbers. And when I wanted to sort of focus on this financial education, I thought it would be helpful. Actually, I thought it would it would not be so helpful if I didn't explain what our numbers were. So I knew that that was something that I wanted to do, which was why I wanted to, you know, be as transparent as possible, because I didn't want people to think that, you know, we make a good income, but we also aren't making, you know, we're not rolling in the dough. We're not millionaires yet. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we're not millionaires. We we're just two modest people who are saving. Right. And even, you know, just recently on my Instagram, I shared what our expenses were in New York City, right? Because they're like, oh, you live in New York City, like you're paying $3,000 in rent. And I'm like, nope, our cell phone bills are $50 a month and you could do it too. And I'll give you some information of how you can do it. So I think that was why I wanted to make sure that I was transparent with our numbers so that people could figure out how that situation, how our situation could relate to their situation and they could see some similarities. And then the second part to your question, the number we're chasing is $1.1 million. And we have a rental property. So we met and married in California in 2015. And then at the end of 2016, we moved to New York City. So we became accidental landlords, right? We had the opportunity to sell or to rent. It was the winter of 2016, and I had always heard that trying to sell a home in the winter wasn't ideal. So I knew that I wanted to rent at least for a year and figure out whether or not that would be what we would do. And so once we did that and had this rental property, the home that we live in now, the apartment that we live in now has been in our family for many, many years. And it's actually 
we own it. So, you know, we have these two properties <laughs> and sort of these two ideal situations. So right now our net worth, I had to, I was looking at our personal capital account and we're at about close to half a million. And we think we will, if we get a few more of these 20% performance rates, the way the market has been this year, we hope to reach our FI number in less than six years. Awesome. And I know that Mrs. Miller, you guys started the blog, I think back in early 2017. And then it looks like you almost took a break. So it looks like you kind of wanted to share the message, but you didn't really know what you wanted to do. And just for some context, so I actually know Mrs. Miller from the blogging for profit course that I put together with Julie from fire drill. Could you talk about like just what inspired you to want to take your blog seriously, start getting back into it and the whole inspiration for that? Yeah, by 2016, we were definitely on this fire journey and I wanted to share the message. I wanted to teach people what compound interest was. I wanted to show people how we were able to vacation while saving money with like all these travel hacking tricks that I was learning. So in 2016, I registered the domain name of Miller's on Fire and I was excited but I am not tech savvy at all. And so it was, it took me months to try to figure out how to set up this WordPress site. And I didn't even hit publish on the blog until more than a year later at the end of 2017. So there was a lot of information out there, right? Like you can read blogs and books and YouTube channels, but you're getting all of these bits of information and pieces. And so by the end of figuring it, trying to figure it all out, and then just finally hitting publish, I was sort of deflated. I was exhausted. I thought it was, you know, like all the momentum of my excitement of teaching people about the fire movement and documenting our journey. You know, it sort of has sucked all the fun out of blogging, to be honest. So you got to this point where it kind of sucked the fun out of it. So I think, you know, one thing what Cody was trying to get at is, you know, what turned that around? Like what made you get excited about it again? Yeah. So I registered the domain name in 2016. In May of 2019, I received the domain renewal email, whether or not I wanted to renew the the domain name. And I had to make a decision. Like, was I going to try to give this a shot or was I going to let it go? And it was right around that time I was listening to a podcast, actually Julie's podcast over at Fire Drill. And she had mentioned she was doing this blogging for profit course. And to be honest, I never really thought about blogging for profit. Like that wasn't my goal. That wasn't my intention. But I knew Julie's podcast and I knew her blog and I knew that she had done something really great. So I just decided to give it one last chance. (laughs) So I renewed the domain name and I registered for the course in June of 2019 The first classes, the course opened officially in July of 2019, and the rest is history. So what have you done since then with your blog? Like what types of changes you've made? Hopefully it's been super helpful. We tried to include as much content as possible to just at least steer you in the right direction. So you're not fumbling around for a year before you hit publish. What like on a tactical level, what have you kind of changed about maybe the way you're blogging or your content or just like everything? So I had sort of lost interest in blogging because I thought it was going to be, it was so hard and it sucked the fun out of it. The listeners can't see my face right now, but there's like a big smile on my face because I love blogging. I love creating. And one of the things that happened was that the blogging for profit course sort of reignited my passion for wanting to share the message because what it did was give me the tools 
teach me the steps to take to make all those things so much easier so that I could teach the lessons I wanted to teach and I could share the message that I wanted to share. And I didn't have to deal with all these technical hurdles. So if there's anybody out there who's wondering whether or not, you know, they should start a blog, but they don't really, they're not really tech savvy. I 100% recommend Cody and Julie's course because it helped me out for sure. What's like the number one thing when you look back on what you, you know, weren't doing before that you are doing now that is kind of the, the game changer that makes things not only just makes it easier, but it just makes it so that you don't talk yourself out of doing it. There have been quite a few things that I've learned in the course, right? I was making things a little bit way too difficult. I knew what SEO was and I knew that it was important, but I didn't really know how to do it. I didn't know what I was looking for. I didn't know how to do keyword research. You know, so that was one of the things that really sort of shifted for me. It was, okay, let's figure out some, you know, I had written maybe about six posts by the time that I started the blogging course. So I wasn't even like I had a lot of posts up. But no one was going to the site. And I've shared this before where, you know, my views were really low. I was getting like 20 views a month. I don't even know who was seeing it, you know, or how they were seeing it. But, you know, just implementing the things that I was learning, for example, about SEO search engine optimization, you know, made those posts automatically get more views. And one of the last questions, Mrs. Miller. So what do you tell someone who maybe they want to go start their blog? They want to get set up, but they don't really know where to start. So there's two, I guess there's two people that I would be talking to. One is that person who wants to start and one is that person who has started, but maybe has lost the motivation to do anything else. Like maybe their readership has plateaued or they are not really growing. One of the things that I would do is to get the help that you need. And as I mentioned before, yes, there's blog posts out there. There's books you could read. There's YouTube videos that you could search out. But just searching for those things can be so complicated. It can be, it's tedious. One of the things that I did was get into a situation, get into a course that really had the steps and the tools laid out for you. This is what you do. Number one, how do you register a domain name? You know, how do you set up your first homepage? How do you how do you insert pictures? How do you italicize? How do you customize your web page? These were all things that just took forever. And I think I was doing it in a roundabout way because I didn't really understand. And I didn't have what steps to take in order to start that process. So, you know, what I'll do for your listeners is that I actually will give them an inside look how the course has helped me to set up my website. I'll set up a page. If they go to my blog, millersonfire.com forward slash course review, I'm going to share with them where I came from and where my blog is right now. I'll share my views, my stats, and what I actually think about the course. Awesome. All right. We'll definitely link that up in the show notes. Well, Mrs. Miller, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's definitely an interesting journey. And I know a lot of people are going to be really looking forward to watching you as you continue down that road and, and hopefully hit that 1.1 million someday. So if they want to do that, where's the best place for them to go? Yeah. So I blog over at millersonfire.com. They can check me out there. And I'm also pretty active on Instagram. So they can find me at Mrs. Miller on Fire. Sweet. All right. And something we like to ask all of our guests is what is your number one tip for someone on the path to financial independence? Don't be discouraged. Save more than you spend and invest the rest. Love it. 
concise and true. <laughs> All right. Well, now it comes to the fun part of the episode. Not that the other wasn't, but the best part of the episode, which is the wild card question. So this is a question that we didn't prepare for. We didn't write it down. Cody didn't even know who was going to ask it until a minute ago. So are you ready? All right. Let's do it. All righty. So let's fast forward. Let's say that you meet that sweet goal at six years from now. You got $1.1 million in the bank. What are you and the hubby doing to celebrate that moment? I'm going to rent a Tesla for a weekend. That's what I want to do. <laughs> I'm going to splurge a little bit. I don't think I could ever spend the money to buy a Tesla, but I feel like, you know, my husband says he's going to retire right away. I don't think I'll retire, but I will splurge and rent a Tesla for a weekend and get away somewhere. Hey, I love it. Get on Turo, get a, get a couple days worth, get it out of your system. There you go. Exactly. Exactly. I start a terrible habit, actually. But <laughs> <laughs> Well, once you hit that mighty 1.1 million goal, I'm sure that's going to be an awesome day. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited about it. I think it'll be good. I mean, if you would have told this girl from the Bronx that she would have even close to half a million dollars in the bank one day, she wouldn't have believed you. So it's really, you know, I don't want to be flipping about, you know, the amount of money that we've saved and invested. Like it's, it's a big deal. Like, I'm really proud and humbled by it. Well, Mrs. Miller, this has been a super fun episode, and you have an inspiring story. That girl from the Bronx is sitting in front of us today, chatting with us with a net worth of over half a million dollars. So that's just awesome in itself. And thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you so much for having me, Cody and Justin. This has been an awesome opportunity and it's been a lot of fun. Alrighty, Justin, we had another awesome episode featuring a guest who, you know, came from almost nothing. And she even felt this idea of wealth guilt at one point, And now she's just crushing it, beelining down this path to fire. What did you think about the episode, Ben? Yeah, I really enjoyed this episode. I mean, somewhat selfishly because that I relate to it so much. You know, I came from a background where I also didn't see just, you know, a ton of success, a ton of excess income or excess savings. So I definitely have had some of that guilt. And I also am, you know, on a similar path as far as kind of attacking it in a somewhat traditional way where it's just, you know, high income and saving a lot of money, nothing too crazy out there, you know, not starting a company, nothing like that. So it was just a story that I could really relate to. And I think it's a story that a lot of people can relate to. And the thing that helps people kind of envision themselves in that position is how transparent she is with the blog, you know, putting all her numbers out there. So that's another thing I really appreciated. And an important topic that she touched on, I think this is so true for a lot of people. A lot of my friends, in fact, is this idea of like, okay, I'm putting away, say, whatever the percentage is that makes you feel comfortable and makes you sleep at night and say, okay, like I'm a saver. She's putting away like eight or 10%. And a lot of us in the FI community, the financial independence community know that's not too, too much money. You're probably not going to retire really early on that amount, but it feels pretty good. A lot of people are like, okay, if I'm saving this, I can go spend the rest. And she kind of got stuck in this vicious loop where she go, she could afford it. She could quote unquote afford it at least. And she'd go buy 40 pairs of shoes or she'd go spend $300 in a weekend on clothes or just go out to eat whenever she felt like it. And I see this a lot with friends and family who are kind of skeptical and they're like, Cody, why are you doing this? Like you're crazy. And I'm like, I'm not about those little quick wins. Like, sure, it probably tastes great if you go spend $100 in a dinner and get a bunch of drinks out. But if you're doing that all the time, like you're just going to forget. Justin, you're the one who said this on several podcasts. It's like, ask someone what they ate last Tuesday. They're not going to remember most of the time. Unless, I mean, maybe it was the craziest meal of all time. <laughs> but most people don't remember spending money on little silly things. You're not going to be like, 
okay, like how much value did that shirt bring you that's still in your closet? Mrs. Miller was saying she had stuff with the tag still on it from years ago that she bought. She's spending thousands of dollars per year on all this discretionary stuff just because she had the income and she didn't really have any real goals in place. Yeah, I think honestly what you see here in her story and the way she started out is something, unfortunately, that's extremely common, even with people who have plenty of income to go towards these financial independence type goals. They're saving 10, 15 percent. And I think it's pointing to this big problem with all these like infographics and these quote unquote experts who are like, this is the budget you should follow. And it, you know, it's 15 percent goes to saving. And what it doesn't say, and I think what maybe and hopefully some of these people are trying to say is you should save at least 15 percent if you can't save any more. But somehow we've turned that into the goal. We're now 10, 15 percent of your savings is this goal. And what that allows you to do is to say, well, I've saved my 10, 15 percent. So therefore, I've earned the right to spend all the rest of it. And when you do that, you just give yourself very few options if something in your current situation or plan changes like you have. You don't have much resiliency. You know, we think about it all the time with insurance where we pay for insurance in case something bad happens, but we don't think about that in our own income. Like we're not putting money back as this insurance just in case like you start hating your job one day or you get fired or your industry gets taken away. I mean, you know, maybe you're the greatest stock boy at Blockbuster and then you wake up one morning and discover Netflix just came along. <laughs> and then, I mean, the last thing Cody was, whoa, what was that, Justin? It's that call to action. And the call to action this week is somewhat broad, but also tactical. So with Miss Miller, she had this blog that she had started and then she gave up on it because she kind of made it too difficult on herself. And so she deemed it as just too much work and she put it away. Well, then she discovers the course, you know, and she realizes, oh, I can do this easier. And then she starts to love it. And now, you know, I'm sure she can't imagine herself not doing it. So the thing I would like for everybody to try this week is to just look at any kind of hobby or anything that you've started, any kind of side project that you looked into that you gave up on because it seemed too difficult and just kind of brush that off and go back and say, how can you make it more efficient? Because if something's really efficient and you can remove some of the time it takes, then you're more likely to stay motivated and stick with it. That is an awesome call to action, Justin. And if you want to get any of the things we talked about today, any of the links, the links to sign up for the courses, you can do that over at thefyshow.com slash Millers. That is plural. So it's M-I-L-L-E-R-S, thefyshow.com slash Millers. And so like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, we did talk about the Blogging for Profit course. Mrs. Miller was a student in that course, and she's been absolutely crushing it so far. And so our open enrollment actually starts this weekend for the Blogging for Profit course that Mrs. Miller mentions and also the Etsy Printables course. We only open both those courses a handful of times per year, so just want to make sure you guys are aware. And as a special bonus from Justin and myself, all you awesome Five Show listeners, we are throwing in some specials for the Five Show listeners who sign up. So if you're interested in the blogging course that Mrs. Miller talked about, you can go sign up at thefiveshow.com slash blogging. That's thefiveshow.com slash blogging. It will also be linked up in the show notes so you don't have to remember. And then if you're someone who, because we've gotten a lot of interest and a lot of emails asking when the Etsy course is going to be open again, you can also sign up for that course at thefiveshow.com slash Etsy. Now, what does signing up those links get you? So we have these bonus eBooks that we will be giving anyone who signs up through the Five Show link. Both of the eBooks are separate. One is specific to blogging. One is specific to Etsy. And you will get that immediately full access once you sign up through the link. And one last time, that's thefiveshow.com slash blogging and thefiveshow.com slash Etsy. Now, if you want to join one of the most inclusive, awesome, fun personal finance groups on the internet, you can go do that over at thefiveshow.com slash community. 
And as always, we really, really appreciate those five-star ratings and reviews. It makes Justin and I feel motivated, feel like we're delivering an awesome message, get great guests on, and just keep spreading this message of financial independence. Thank you for listening. See you on next week's episode of The Fi Show. 